verses, and we read this in connection with Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which further explains to us our sin and misery. We look this morning especially at the reality of total depravity. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages of Scripture that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism found on page 4 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence, our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the last time that you were in the catechism, you began to look at how great our sin and misery is and what our situation is 
outside of Jesus Christ. Last time, with Lord's Day 2, you began by focusing on the law, the law of God. Whence proceedeth? Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. And you looked into the mirror of God's law last time and you saw an ugly reflection. You saw that we, by nature, do not keep God's law at all. Rather, in fact, we are prone by nature to hate God and hate the neighbor. The law tells us to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we see by the law that we only hate God and hate the neighbor. Well, here, with Lord's Day 3... The Catechism goes on to further explain and develop this reality. What do we mean when we say that we are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor? Well, this is what we mean. By nature, we are wicked. By nature, we are perverse. We are all conceived and born in sin. And by nature, we are so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good whatsoever... And we are inclined unto all wickedness. The Catechism wants to make it perfectly clear what our situation is outside of Jesus Christ, not being delivered from our sin and misery through Jesus Christ. And the Catechism also wants to emphasize this morning that this is all our own doing. and This is not how God originally created us. But we can be thankful that the Catechism does this, that the Catechism takes the time and makes it perfectly clear how great our sin and misery is. And we can be thankful because this truth of total depravity, which is what we're going to look at this morning, is one of the pillars of the gospel of grace. Total depravity is one of the precious doctrines of sovereign particular grace. This doctrine is precious to us. Our depravity is not precious to us, but this doctrine is precious to us. Just like we hold unconditional election to be a glorious biblical truth. Just like we hold limited atonement to be a glorious and biblical truth. And we hold irresistible grace and the perseverance and the preservation of the saints to be glorious biblical truths. So too it is with total depravity. That's one of the petals of tulip. And the reality is, you take this truth away, and you take everything else away with it. The doctrine of total depravity is one of the foundation stones for understanding the true gospel and how all the glory goes to God alone. We can be thankful that the Catechism takes this time to explain total depravity because throughout the history of the church, the truth of total depravity has been constantly under attack. Over and over again, heretics will speak of the gospel. They will speak highly of the gospel. They will speak of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and they will deceive you with the words that they use. But when it comes to the truth of total depravity, that's where they are exposed. It would seem that almost every serious every heresy is serious, almost every heresy in the history of the church has as its main issue a rejection of the biblical doctrine of total depravity. And this doctrine of total depravity comes to heretics like a flashlight and it searches them out 
And it's this flashlight that so often exposes where they are wrong and what they are hiding. And finally, we can be thankful for this treatment of total depravity in the catechism because of the good foundation it establishes for our catechism students. Back home in Randolph, almost every Wednesday night, as I begin the catechism lesson, Heidelberg Catechism class, I do a review, and three of the questions that I ask nearly every week is, are these. First, how great is your sin and misery? Answer, I'm totally depraved by nature. Second, what is total depravity? Answer, I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Third question, how else can we explain total depravity? I am wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. That's who I am outside of Jesus Christ. And the Heidelberg Catechism students back home could bear witness that those are the questions that I like to ask almost every Wednesday night. Why is this so important? Because it's setting the foundation for the gospel. It's setting the proper foundation for showcasing the glory and the grace of God. And so it's also good for us to take the time this morning to look again at this truth, this doctrine We take as our theme, totally depraved by nature. We look at that theme under three points. First, the awful truth. Second, the only source. And third, the great importance. Totally depraved by nature. What is total depravity? Well, to use the language of the catechism, total depravity is this. We are so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. Now, congregation, let's try to get a better understanding of what that means. When we speak about total depravity, we are talking about our natures. When we say we are totally depraved, we're talking about our natures, and we are saying that our natures are fallen. In our natures, we have no ability to do good, no ability to do what is pleasing to God. Our natures are corrupted. In the fall of Adam, sin has corrupted our natures. Now, what is a nature? This is how we usually define our natures. Our natures are all of that which makes us a human being. The nature of man is his body and his soul including his mind and his will and his emotions. God has a divine nature, and that's what makes God who he is as God. God is a divine being. He has a divine nature. We are human beings, and we have a human nature, and our human nature is that which makes us who we are as humans. Our body, our soul, our intellect, our will, our emotions. This is all part of who we are. This is our being. This is our nature. In distinction to our persons, our personality. Think of Jesus. I think that help, that's helpful. Jesus, as to his person, is the second person of the Trinity. But Jesus, who is God, became man. He took to himself a human nature, a human being, and became fully man, just like us in all points except for sin. So, I think that helps us to understand what a human nature is. Christ took to himself a human nature. And because of the fall of Adam, that nature is totally depraved. 
Now, I want to prove from the confessions that this is what we actually mean by nature. By the word nature, we refer to all that a man is, all his faculties, all that make him a man. And I want to do that by turning to the canons of Dort, heads three and four, articles one and two. This is on page 67 in the back of the Psalter. Heads three and four of the canons of Dort, articles one and two. Page 67, let me begin with article one. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. Notice the use of those words, his understanding, his heart, his will, his affections, the whole man. It's talking about man's nature. His mind, his soul, will, emotions, and inclinations. I think we could also include the heart. Continuing, though, in the second half of Article 1, but revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind. Horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in all his affections. Notice again the words being used. His mind, his heart, his will, his affections. Now Article 2. Man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature. And notice the use of that word nature. That's what our nature is. Our whole being, our body and soul, our intellect, our understanding, our affections, our will, our desires, our inclinations, all of that. So we have a clear understanding of what our natures are. And that in distinction from what, who we are as persons, but our natures, our human natures. Now what does it mean that our human natures are totally depraved? I can point out two main things in this respect. And this is outside of Christ. Left in our sin and misery, fallen in Adam, this is what our natures are. I can point out two main things. First, that our natures are totally depraved means this. That every part of our existence is corrupted by sin's influence and dominated by sin's rule. Left to ourselves outside of Christ, when it's just us and our sinful natures in our fallen condition in Adam... Every part of our existence is filled with wickedness. That is, not only are my actions wicked, but my speech, my thoughts, my motives, my wishes, my mind, my soul, my spirit, every part of my nature has been corrupted, polluted, defiled by sin. Every part of my nature is perverse. My will, my soul, my intellect is Twisted. That's what perverse means. It's twisted. I'm so bent. I am twisted. Every part of my nature is bent and deformed from a spiritual and moral and ethical point of view so that I cannot and I will not and I cannot will to walk in the straight paths of God's holy law. My nature is contrary to God's law. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Second, that our natures are totally depraved means this. 
That in our fallen condition in Adam, not only is every part of my existence corrupted by sin's influence, but every part of my existence is completely corrupted, completely wicked. That is to say, my mind is not just touched by corruption, it's not just partly wicked and partly good, no, it's totally corrupted, totally wicked. My will is not partly wicked and partly good, so that there's a good part of my will that struggles to do the good, and there's an evil part that struggles to do what is sinful. No, it's totally wicked. My inclinations are not partly wicked and partly good. They are totally wicked. Now, we need to be, under, we need to be clear here. We still have a human nature. Right? Some will say that this, this would mean we turn into animals or we turn into a beast. That's, that's not the case. We still have a mind. We still have a soul. We still have a body and emotions and a will. It's not like my soul ceases to be a soul. It's not like my body ceases to be a human body. I still have these things. It's not like I turn into an animal or a beast. But when we say that these things are completely wicked, we mean that all these things are under the power and control and influence of sin. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, in my sinful nature, so corrupt am I by sin that I am repelled by what is good. I am repelled by what is righteous. This is a vicious nature. It's not just that I lack what is good, but I am inclined to all evil. I'm not any less a human being. I'm still fully man. I can still think. I'm still responsible before God. But who I am as a man is corrupted through and through by sin. I do not just have a preference for sin or a tendency to sin. No, sin and rebellion and hatred towards God pervades my entire being. Now to prove this biblically, let us remember what we read from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me reread Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And you have he quickened, made alive, you have he regenerated, who were dead in sins and trespasses, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now notice verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were by nature the children of wrath. That's total depravity, full of hatred and enmity against God. And what's the figure Paul uses? It's the figure of being dead, spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. And yet the idea is, though I am spiritually dead, that doesn't mean I'm not active. But what it means is this, in all my activity all my willing and all my thinking and all my desiring and all my feeling. It's all characterized by sin and it's in the service of sin and Satan. I use all that I have and I press all, all of it in the service of sin and the service of self. Even my conscience, even my ability to reason, even my knowledge of good and evil and having virtue for law and order, the, the glimmerings of natural light, I have those things, but I render them wholly polluted and I use it to pursue only after sin. I will not weep over my sin. I will not be sorry over my sin. I will not seek after God. I will not desire to weep over my sin. 
with the true sorrow. And beloved, this is what we mean when we say that by nature, man does not have a free will. So now we're talking here about the faculty of willing. Part of our human nature is that faculty of willing to to choose. This is what Martin Luther was emphasizing when he spoke against the Roman Catholic Church and when he emphasized the bondage of the will. Maybe you know the book that he wrote, The Bondage of the Will. And to say that we have the bondage of the will by nature, to say that we don't have a free will, doesn't mean that we don't have a will anymore. We still have a will, but it means that our will, fallen in Adam, is not free to choose the good. Our wills by nature, our faculty of choosing and desiring is in bondage to sin. Our wills are thoroughly corrupt and our wills will never, outside of Christ, choose to do the good. Our wills can only choose to do what is in harmony with our nature. Adam had a free will. Adam could choose to obey God or to sin. In Adam's fall, that freedom was taken away. He lost that freedom. That was part of his punishment. And that was the the result of his rebellion against God. And it's only by a supernatural act of God in regeneration. It's only by that act of God of taking a dead sinner and translating him out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Translating him in the very depths of his being and planting the seed of the new man of Christ in him and giving him a new heart at the very center of his being, that a man is given, once again, the ability to choose what is good. Now this must be said too. All of what we've just said does not mean that man by nature commits all the sins that he can possibly commit. That's how some would misconstrue the doctrine of total depravity too, as if we teach that man is always committing all the worst possible sins he can commit. We understand not everyone has the opportunity or the means to to commit all sins. And there's only so much time you have. And, And God in His providence and in His power restrains man too. This is not part of God's grace, but this is simply part of God's providence and His power. The Belgian Confession teaches us in Article 13 that God so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without His will and permission they cannot hurt us. And how does God restrain us? Well, among the restraints God uses are the fear of punishment, the desire for the approval of others. That's why we don't go murdering everyone we meet. Or the restrictions of government and civil law. We know that there are earthly consequences. But it must be emphasized that those restraints are only outward restraints. And they do not lessen the actual wickedness of man's sinful nature. Man does not always act as bad as he could act, meaning he's not always murdering when he could be murdering. But that's not because there's something good in man. It's because man is self-interested. But in his sinful nature, as far as his nature is concerned, man is as bad as he could be. He's not always acting as bad as he could act, but he is as bad as he could be. That's what total depravity means. And no man is by nature any different than anyone else. We are all equally the same when it comes to who we are by nature. Wholly incapable of doing any good whatsoever. 
and inclined to all evil. And we're all the same because we all get that sinful nature from the same earthly parents. Now what's the significance of all of this? Still in the first point of the sermon, I want to address that briefly. What's the significance of all of this? It ought to be plain. I have three things. First, I by nature, left to myself, cannot do anything towards my own salvation. Absolutely nothing. In fact, by nature, I fight against my own salvation. In Jeremiah 13, verse 23, we read, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leper change his spots? Then may ye also do good who are accustomed to do evil. And there the point is, the Ethiopian cannot change his skin, the leper cannot change his spots, and just so, sinful man cannot change his sinful ways. Second, the significance is that I, by nature, left to myself, cannot do any good. I think we've seen that already, but that's where many get offended. This is why the Catechism will also emphasize later on, in Lord's Day 33, that a good work must proceed out of a true faith. It's only out of a true faith, because only out of Jesus Christ can I do what is good. And even then, all my best works are defiled and polluted with sin. That's Lord's Day 24. Because as Christ works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure, we still have a sinful nature. And so that whatever we do out of Christ, out of that new heart, because we're also doing it through the flesh, it's polluted and corrupted. We cannot perform a perfect good work in this life. And then third, the significance is this. Maybe I go off into a little bit of a tangent here, but I think this is important. This is the confession that the child of God makes. This is my living confession even now, that this is who I am outside of Jesus Christ. This is who I am fallen in Adam. Even now, though I have been regenerated, and I am a new man in Christ, and I have been made a new creation, and, and I have been given a new heart, and, and new qualities are infused into the will, and I can think God's thoughts after Him, and I can will to do the good, and I can have godly emotions. Yet there is still this depravity that always cleaves to me. And this sinful nature, this old man, now we talk about him as this old man, this sinful nature, this old man doesn't get any better, but remains totally depraved. That's what we mean when we, when we say we're totally depraved by nature. That's what explains my sin. My new man doesn't sin. My new man is incorruptible because my new man is exactly the life of Christ in me. Christ doesn't sin, but it's my sinful flesh, my sinful nature that inclines me to all this sin. And that's why there's this warfare within me, the old man against the new man, the flesh against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And for the Christian, this is exactly part of the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ, that even now, as a Christian, experiencing this warfare, even now, I am still, in no way am I my own, but I belong to Christ. And I don't ultimately identify myself with that old man. Yes, I'm responsible for that old man. And when I sin, I don't say my old man sinned. I say I sinned. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. I have a sinful nature. 
But ultimately, I identify with Christ. I repudiate my sinful nature. But that's still part of who I am. It still cleaves to me. And as we walk as pilgrims and strangers, we look forward to the day when we will be able to put off that old man of sin once and for all, and we will be glorified in the whole of our human nature, the whole of our being. Well, this is the awful truth. Totally depraved. This is where we find ourselves fallen in Adam. And this is still how our old man is to be characterized today. Totally depraved. Well, the question comes to us, where did this depravity come from? What is the source, the source of this depravity in me? Well, the scripture makes it clear that the blame is not to be put on God. God is not the author of sin. He is not the one to receive the blame. Let us consider for a moment what that would mean. If God were the author of sin, that would mean, first of all, that God would have to be the performer, that God would be the one himself who carries out the sinful deed, as if God through us was committing sin. But God does not perform sin. His creatures do. If God were the author of sin, that would mean, second of all, that God would entice his creatures to sin by, by promising them a benefit in exchange for committing sin. Or he would even have to force or manipulate his creatures to sin against their better judgment. And God didn't do that. God did the exact opposite. He forbade the sin. And he threatened sin with death. And if God were the author of sin, that would mean, third of all, that God would have to delight in sin and approve it as something pleasing in his sight. But God doesn't do that. Yes, God has his purposes with sin, and he is sovereign over all sin, but God is not the one who takes pleasure in sin as sin. Rather than God being the author of sin, Scripture emphasizes that God created man good and after his own image. God created man not just as a man, not just as a human being with a human nature, but now God created man with the human nature, body and soul, mind, emotions, and will, that was upright and that was noble and good in every way. God created man with the greatest of privileges in a most favorable position. God created man in his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, and a personal spiritual knowledge of God and love for God. Man's nature was not corrupt, but perfectly holy, perfectly devoted to God, and perfectly capable of doing everything right. Loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving his neighbor as himself. God created man so that man could think God's thoughts after him. That man could will God's will. All his affections and desires were pure, and the whole man was holy. Further, by virtue of making man in his own image, God created man in covenant fellowship with him. So that Adam, in his creation, was the friend of God. Even from the moment he took his first breath, he tasted and he knew the goodness of God. But one thing we can also point out is this. God created man capable of falling. God did not create Adam and Eve with any flaws, but God did create Adam and Eve capable of falling. And that's one way in which heaven will be better than the Garden of Eden. Because in heaven, there won't be that possibility to fall. 
So what explains then man's fall into sin? What is the only source of man's depravity? As the Catechism states in answer 7, this depravity proceeds from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This depravity was God's punishment upon Adam and Eve for their sin. God created man good and upright, but Satan came along and tempted Eve with the fruit, tempted Eve with the lie, said, you shall, you shall be as gods. Or perhaps better, you shall be as God. And Satan was implying that God was depriving Eve and Adam of something good. And then Satan even said that God was a liar. You shall not surely die, he says, even though he knew that they would. And Eve ate of the fruit, and she gave to Adam, and he ate of the fruit. And we must understand that Adam and Eve were not simply helpless victims of a sneaky and underhanded trick. When they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that was open and deliberate rebellion against God. We might say perhaps especially on Adam's part, it was a revolting against God. They knew what the results would be, but they did it anyway. And that's what makes this event so shocking and so tragic. Adam and Eve did not even know evil, never mind delight in it. But the devil used great cunning and persuasion so that these two perfect human beings were tempted to think that there was a better way than the way of God. And they sinned and they did it freely. They did it willingly. And God told them, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And that's exactly what happened. They died. They became dead in sins and trespasses. They began to die physically as physical death now entered into the whole world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And they died spiritually. And if it had not been for God's grace, they would have died eternally. And so what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Two fundamental things happened. First, they lost the image of God. Man lost the image of God. And he, and he lost the image of God in its entirety. He lost the true knowledge of God. He became unrighteous and unholy. As we saw, he became totally depraved. He took on the image of Satan, his spiritual father. Now... That's what it means to die, to be spiritually dead. His nature became corrupt and wicked and perverse. That was Adam's punishment for his sin. And then second, what happened is that that corruption spread throughout the whole human race. What happened to Adam and Eve in their spiritual death also happened to the entire human race in Adam. As we read, Canons of Dort, Heads 3 and 4, Article 2, a corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring so that we are all conceived and born in sin. Adam and Eve were only able to bring forth totally depraved children. That's what we confess. That's what they had made themselves to be. And that's, that, that's what they made themselves to be, and that's all that they could bring forth. And why is this true? That you and I are conceived and born in sin? Well, it's not only because a corrupt stock produces a corrupt offspring, but it's also because... Adam and Eve were our legal representatives before the Lord. Perhaps we should emphasize Adam especially. Adam himself was the head of the human race, our legal representative. 
And when he sinned, that was us sinning. And the punishment we deserve for the sin that we committed in Adam is death. God said that. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He was speaking to us. Adam was our perfect representative. What, we, we should not just say that what Adam did, we would have done. No, what Adam did, we did do. Because we were there in Adam. Not only was Adam the legal head of the human race, but God also placed Adam in the position of king over creation. And Adam's calling was to rule as king over creation under God and press the whole creation in the service of the glory of God. And so when Adam sinned, in his position as king, the curse of God upon Adam also came not just upon the human race, but upon the whole creation. And death entered not just the human race, but death entered all of creation. So when Adam sinned, God imputed to us and to all men the guilt of Adam's first sin. That's called original guilt. And then there's original corruption, which is the depraved nature we receive from Adam because of our sin. And both these things together, original guilt and original corruption, make up what we call original sin. And that's the source of our total depravity. By nature of ourselves, each person in the human race is totally depraved, wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. Dead. Dead in sins and trespasses. Children of wrath. Now what is the great importance of knowing all these things? What's the great importance of knowing all these things? Well, as I implied in the introduction, this doctrine of total depravity is not an isolated doctrine. It is intimately woven with all the doctrines of grace. Understanding that we are totally depraved by nature, we come to see in another way just how great our sin and misery is. With Lord's Day 4, it's going to show us something more about our sin and misery, that there's hell coming for those who are outside of Christ. Understanding total depravity, we are prepared to appreciate what grace is all about. This is laying the foundation. We should see here this morning, we do not deserve anything but God's just judgment. We cannot do anything good. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. We are of ourselves utterly lost. Looking to ourselves, we have no hope. And to look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ is something we are of ourselves incapable of doing. And, and to look anywhere for salvation is something that we don't do. If anything, we would drive God out of our world and we would make ourselves God instead of Him. But God sent Jesus Christ to take upon Himself our human nature and to bear in that human nature all the punishment we deserved for our sins. God carried out His judgment upon Jesus Christ that we might be shown God's irresistible grace. Ephesians 2 verse 10, or verses 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, 
It is the gift of God. This, this is where we speak of the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God's love, whom he gave for us and in our stead. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Understanding our total depravity and how it came about through the sin of Adam and Eve, we're also prepared to see how we can be delivered from our sin and misery through Jesus Christ. We come to a fuller understanding of how we can be delivered and how Jesus does deliver us. Just as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all who are in Christ shall be made alive. Just as all who have Adam as their first head die, so all who have Christ as their second Adam shall live and shall be made alive. We celebrated that last week's Sunday, Easter Sunday. All for whom Christ died on the cross shall be made alive. He takes away the guilt of our sin, dying in our place, and he also takes away the corruption of our sin. Uh, the guilt and the corruption. So understanding our total depravity, we can also understand what Jesus needs to do to deliver us from our sin and misery. As I just said, he needs to take away our guilt. He takes away the reason for which we deserve to be dead in sins and trespasses. He takes away the actual rebellion we committed. He, he blots that out so God doesn't hold it against us any longer. He did that through his work on the cross. And then second, still, besides that, he also needs to take away our corruption and the spiritual death and the total depravity into which we've plunged ourselves. He needs to carry out that work of restoring us once again to the image of God, translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, raising us from being dead in sins and trespasses to life, quickening us. He does that by the work of his Holy Spirit and it begins right at the moment of regeneration. And that's the glorious wonder of regeneration. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And now it's as Christians that we come to church gladly by the Spirit of Christ. We call upon the name of the Lord and we give Him praise. And we seek out more grace that we might grow in godliness and in grace. And ultimately, all this knowledge about our total depravity is necessary in order to understand, in order to understand what it means that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ. Except we understand this truth of total depravity, that comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ won't resonate with us as deeply as it should. We need to see our sin and misery that we might understand and understand more fully that our only comfort is that with body and soul, both in life and death, we belong to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that he has given us that comfort. What do we see in all of this? We see that salvation is God's work and God's work alone. And that's how Ephesians 2, the section that we read, ends. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And the glory goes to God alone. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for the great deliverance and the salvation that Thou hast given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank Thee, Father, for opening our eyes and causing us to see in another way just how great our sin and misery is when left to ourselves. We thank Thee, Father, that Thou hast written upon our hearts that glorious, comforting truth that we belong to Jesus Christ. Lord, impress that upon us always, so that in every circumstance of life we might know that our identity is found in belonging to Jesus Christ. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives. Shape us by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.